Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, working artists earn $6,000 less than workers with similar education. More than 35% are self-employed, yet less than one-third have achieved full sustainability, meaning they fully support themselves with their art. The difference between just making art and and creating a sustainable art career that strengthens an economy for a lifetime is proper business training and tools. You can have an exponential impact with just a small donation. So give small at clarkhewlingsfund.org impact. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. That's clarkhewlingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate your small gift. Now, our guest today is James Kitchen. James is the founder and president of the National School Art Collective, a nonprofit created to develop student-curated and student-owned fine art collections in high schools. James also teaches art and home building at Tippecanoe High School. James, welcome to the show. Can you take a minute to tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and what you do? Sure. I've been a teacher for 19 years and did a lot of my teaching in Texas. Um, recently moved back to Ohio a couple of years ago. And when I moved back, I founded the National School Art Collective. Um, when I was in Texas, I had an opportunity to begin an art collection at a high school. And through that collection, I learned quite a bit about the ins and outs of starting one and the challenges uh, involved. And, and of course, the benefits to the students, school community, and, and the artists. So Right now, I am running the National School Art Collective and teaching, and it's been very busy of late. Now, help us understand how this works, because there are all kinds of organizations dedicated to helping students create art, um, to, to fostering arts education programs uh, in schools. But this one is not about that. The National School Art Collective is about student-curated and student-owned fine art or professional art collections that are actually displayed in schools. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about this so we can get a clearer picture? Sure. You know, one of the things that, that you'll notice with art programs is that they will only touch a certain number of students within a school. Any student that signs up for an art class, they may take that, uh, particularly in a high school, maybe once, possibly twice during their high school career. And you're still only getting a small segment of the student population. So there's a, there's a whole group of students that walk the halls and attend the school, and they really don't get an art experience, a visual art experience. All that they, they might see maybe is one time a year, a special art show by the art students. So one of the goals of the National School Art Collective is to bring an art experience to students in a school every day. And I think that's what makes our program a little different. Um, it's something that we're sharing with the entire student body. And normally, whether it be music or dance, you know, it, it only affects a small group of the students in the school. So we are trying to take this idea and help promote the visual arts to everyone within the school. Well, so let's dig into how it actually, how the wheels turn. So when we talk about students curating and then owning the art, are they reaching into their lunch money and coming up with the, the spare change or their allowance to purchase this art? And how does the curation work? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, one of the things that I, I understood early on is that an art collection in a school really isn't going to work if a bunch of adults are going to be in control of it. Um, you know, quite often you have initiatives set forth in a school and, and it's led by a faculty member or um, the administration. But what really makes this work is that the students, a small group of students will come together and run the program, much like a museum curator would. And they make the initial selections. They reach out to the artists. Um, they put together the program to get the artists to submit just like they would for an art competition or to a gallery per se. So they submit their artwork to the school under certain conditions, uh, timelines, certain types of pieces that the school will be able to display, you know, based on um, whether or not they have space to, to show two-dimensional work or three-dimensional work. 
And then ask, after that happens, then they narrow that uh, number of artists with their artwork down to a small number. Once they have that number, that small number, they will put forth the artwork, the artist's information to the entire student body. And then the student body will end up voting on it um, on one day. And then after that, the selections are made, there'll be an announcement in some form or fashion, usually at an event that they hold at the school to uh, promote the program, to to invite the artists in and the community in to kind of share in this moment of we're going to purchase these these artworks and display them in the school permanently. And this is going to be the student's art collection that they'll have for generations. One of the things about the collection itself is that, you know, the schools will need help initially to make it work because it, at first you're selling an idea. But once you have a number of artworks up in the school, now you're selling the collection to anybody who has an interest in, in art and helping the school and helping the students purchase the artwork. There are some things that you can do on a, on a campus to raise money. Um, one of the more popular things that, that organizations will do within a school is to hold a dance. Um, what we did in Texas is we took $2 from every ticket that was purchased for the homecoming dance and we took that money and we used it to purchase the first five artworks in the in the collection. And that seemed to work really well, but it was a large school, so there were a lot of tickets sold. So every school will be different. I think every school will will have a different number of works they may purchase, and it will probably vary year to year. Well, so help me, I have a couple of questions about this. First, what's in it for the fine artist? I mean, short of um, sort of getting paid for their work, um, you know, is there is there something more? Uh, because the reason I ask is this, I would think that it's one thing to sell your art out of a, uh, a gallery or out of a show where you have a chance for that marketing to do some work for you. But you're, you're hanging the art in public schools. I mean, the actual original art too, not prints, I think. And, you're, and people are, are then deciding uh, on what to buy as a school and then it's being purchased. Does that have a lasting effect or is there any effect beyond the money? And I, and I, I want to cheat and ask you another question. Is it discount bottom barrel prices or is it full retail? No, it's, you know, and, and that's going to vary by the artist. Um, some artists uh, just want to help students out so that they can experience the artwork and they will discount their work because they know it's going to a school with, with kids that will come through there and their families and all these different events. And, and they just want to share their artwork as much as possible. They may have an investment in the school. Maybe their kids went to school there. Maybe they live in the community where there might be other artists that don't want to discount it. And what we did is we just negotiated with the artist and said, look, this is a school. We have to ask if, if this is your final price, if you're willing to come down at all, because if we, if we can have the prices in a, a certain place, we might be able to afford one more artwork. And most of the time, the artists have been very easy to work with, but we understand that, that there's a certain level that they've achieved and there's a certain price point that they probably shouldn't take it down below because of the value of their work. And we want to keep that value. We want the students to understand it has a certain value. And as time passes, you get a better sense of what types of artworks are being bought and how much the pricing is. Um, I think initially when we first started uh, doing this, it was very difficult to try to wrap our heads around what would be the going price for these artists and how much could these students afford? What, what are we getting into? So we had to put some limitations and what that may do is keep some of the artists from applying if, if they think that their, their work shouldn't be sold for under a certain dollar amount. And every school will be different. So a school in a, in an urban area with lots of financial support or, the ability to raise funds may have a higher price point um, and they might put a limit that we will only purchase two or three artworks this year or as many as we can afford, if, you know, within our budget. Um, whereas others, they might only be able to raise a smaller amount each year. 
and have to cap the amount at a certain place to allow for one or two artists to get in. Uh, the real benefit, though, I think, for an artist is that not only is your work being seen by students, but it's being seen on an annual basis by a whole group of new students, parents, community members, anybody who has anything going on within that school. They get a chance to experience that artwork. There's so much downtime in a school between practices, between events and banquets. Uh, There's a lot of eyes that uh, look at that artwork and just to get it out there in the public and especially uh, um, maybe in front of public eyes that don't typically look at artwork. And I, I think that's the beauty of of having professional artwork in a school is that many of those people really have no connection to the art world. And this is forming that connection and, and hopefully at an early stage in their lives. So James, let me ask you this, you know, how do how does a student in high school know what's good or develop the skills to curate beyond sort of I like this you know maybe I don't know why I mean a collector right has to have some knowledge of art history and curators typically have some criteria by which they judge what's good how do the high school students tackle this well the very first year was a bit chaotic because we really didn't have a process we just said here's the artwork let's get a few students together and let's kind of narrow down the field to an amount of, say, 20. And then we put that vote to the student body. Well, you can imagine there were some students that were really passionate about art, maybe had a a pretty decent art background, that really they were not excited about some of the choices. And the, the next year we decided, you know, it was wise to put together a committee of students that had a real interest in what was going to go up on their walls each year. And these were students that were generally advanced placement art students, students that had an interest in going into art as a career after high school, uh, maybe to an art school, or they just really were, were passionate about being a part of something that affected everyone and what they saw. So forming a committee of students was a, a, a real key in making sure that the selections were going to be up to a certain standard. They would look at, you know, obviously the the basic elements and principles of design. They would look at the artist's background, their level of education, the number of shows they had been in, the the prices of their artwork, their, their prestige. And over the course of the second and third year, we really started to narrow down the selections to a really strong group. So it really didn't matter um, once we had our our top 15 or so selected that no matter what the students picked, it would probably be a strong choice because it had passed through an initial committee. Oh, that's really fascinating. And I'm I'm also not hearing that this select committee is is just picking things they like. They're, um, They're picking, so it's not personal art collecting. They're collecting on behalf of an institution. So the, in that sense, there's a curation element of it and a sort of strategic collecting part. So they're, they're, they are looking at things like the viability of, of the artist. Um, that's really fascinating. But let me ask you this. So now that you've reduced it to sort of a, a committee of students, does the program now impact then only a, a select few or um, does it continue to have a widespread impact on the art sensibilities or education of the school body as a whole? Well, it, it, it certainly expands itself because, you know, that you have students that are more familiar with it year after year. They begin to understand this is something that we're going to do at a certain time of the year. We're going to vote on these artworks. And they, they look on the walls and say, well, I really like that, or I voted for this one. I wasn't too fond of that other one. But based on some of the information that I was given, I still think it's really great because this artist um, is an up-and-coming artist. I think they're going to continue to do um, fascinating works that impact society in some way. And, and I think that's, that's what's really nice about having a committee because they generate materials and put forth an effort to help educate the student body. Uh, a lot of schools now have what they call advisory periods. 
so they'll they'll have students go to a, a room uh, very similar to like what a homeroom would be, but they they meet for 25, 30 minutes, and often the school will have certain administrative things that they may have to do. Uh, we may have an assembly, or we may have students that need extra help, so they can use that time to to get some feedback on their homework from a teacher. There's a, there's any number of things, but this advisory period is a is a really important aspect of being able to share information with the entire student body. So we would create some videos. We would find advertising and publications of some of the artists and and share that with students during those times leading up to. Uh, the event where we unveiled the artwork. So there are a lot of students that learned about art through that process in these advisory periods. We would also have the artwork on display prior to the event for a few days so they could really see the artwork up close. Of course, we would have people stationed near the artwork, um, just like you would see in a museum uh, with the security guards being near to make sure no one was touching anything or uh, doing anything rude and crude to any of the works um, and take uh, really special care of it. Um, it gave the students a chance to kind of see the behind the scenes of how do you have to handle artworks and what types of things do you need to worry about in terms of where it's located and lighting and what would work best, you know, when you have a crowd of people walking past, uh, what's going to be the, the best location and what's going to make a statement for some of these works being located in, in different locations. So let me ask you this part. Um, you know, a part of the National School Art Collective is to support school curriculum in general. And you've chosen high schools in particular. Why high schools and not other schools at the secondary or, or the primary level? You know, why not middle school? And how exactly do you support arts education or arts curriculum within the school yeah. more specifically? Well, I I, I, I should clarify that, we, you know, we really aren't limiting ourselves to high schools. That's just where we've seen it work. And I, I think it could work really well in elementaries, uh, middle schools, where they may not have as many things that they get to do together, you know, to, to leave a legacy. It's, it's something that it really, I don't think it matters what grade level. The, the nice thing about having high school students work with it, though, is that they can do a lot of the legwork, and it takes a lot of the work out of the teacher's hands or volunteers. You know, we would have students that would come up with the, the marketing and the advertising, the graph design, the posters. We would send uh, a lot of information to universities and art schools promoting the, the competition. Um, for anyone who wanted to apply. We had some very uh, simple parameters that they had to meet. Uh, they had to be a curated artist. They had to be over a certain age. They had to be within the same state. Uh, so there, there were a few things that they had to comply with. But outside of that, for the, for an, from an artist standpoint, you're, you're going to get your work in front of a lot of different people daily. And, I, you know, I don't know what the numbers might compare to, but I don't know how many people walk through, you know, a gallery in a day. But I can guarantee you, you know, at, at some of these large high schools around the country, we would have anywhere between three and 4,000 people coming through the doors. And that was probably a low number at times, especially some of these mega schools. But no, it, it could definitely work at a school at a different level, middle school, elementary, and be very interested in helping a school at that level start it. I want to ask you kind of a practical question. <laughs> it may seem trivial, but, you know, artworks are chosen as finalists and I, from essentially, I think, still school hallways, which allow students to see them, even if not everyone is is participating in a sort of a mass democratic vote, which gets you sort of democratic art, Thomas Kincaid, uh, not to knock it, but, you know, a different type of, uh, of uh, product. So when the art is there, it's the original art. How do you ensure that the art is kept safe? And why not just fill the hallways with reproductions or prints and let people make their choices off of those rather than the risking the originals? Right. Well, you know, I, I think it's, 
it all goes back to, you know, seeing an authentic object, whether it be a, a piece of furniture, a painting, a vehicle. When you see something in front of you that is not a reproduction, it sometimes takes on a different meaning. It takes on a different feeling for the person who's viewing it. You get a chance to see the brush strokes, the chisel marks. You get to, to see maybe how that, that type of photograph was printed on metal. You know, that those are, those are things that you can't get from a reproduction. And even though it is in a school, uh, there are challenges to securing it and protecting it. But, but these things can be worked around. In general, there's very little in terms of, of having to worry about the artwork with the way that it would be framed and secured. You know, our, our biggest fear is that we want to make sure that nothing would ever fall off of a wall and, and you know, hit someone's foot, uh, something like that, I think would be more of a worry. In terms of the artwork itself, you know, it's we, we have to protect it in a way that may not be um, the best in terms of displaying the work because it would have to be covered either encased, uh, like a sculpture encased with a, a type of plexiglass. And the same thing with, with, um, with a painting or with a drawing or photograph. We have to put a barrier between that and the students. If you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast, which brings insights of value to artists and entrepreneurs. Visit clarkhewlingsfund.org thrive to continue bringing content like this to the public. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, we're talking with James Kitchen, president of the National School Art Collective. James, help me understand, let's zoom out. Why is it, what's the, the deeper reason that you want young people to collect art in the first place? You know, I, um, I've been teaching students art for many years, and one of the things about it that, that is somewhat challenging, especially in, in this time, is that there's a lot of competition for time and entertainment. And I've asked students over the years, and, it, and, the, and the answer keeps changing. How many of you have been to a museum, or how many of you have been to a gallery? And there's fewer and fewer hands. Now, we're more mobile now than we used to be in the past, but I, I get very, very few students that, that talk about a gallery experience or a museum experience or seeing artwork up close. We've become a very um, immediate society. We have to look at something on our phone, and we get immersed in that. And then there are so many activities that young people are in. They may be in school, but they have Cub Scouts and baseball practice and ballet and, and all these events that take up their time. And, and right now we have so many students that are depressed and are medicated because they, they have a lack of time. They do not have the type of free time to go do as many fun things and enjoyable things as maybe they did in the past. You see a lot of students that are that are bogged down by whether it be their studies, uh, work, or that their activities. So um, over the years, I've I've seen it even as a teacher that we take fewer and fewer trips to museums. Buses cost money, and gas costs money, and substitute teachers cost money. So. It's not in the best interest for an administrator to arrange a museum trip when they have to pay for extra resources to help their students do well on standardized tests that they may be evaluated on. So it's an uphill, it's an uphill battle to get students to see artwork in person. And, and the ones that they do see are generally, you know, just the ones that are produced by the students. So, you know, I, I've, feel very strongly that young people need to have that experience and it, it, the, the effects can um, be dramatic over a lifetime. Uh, experiencing uh, an artwork in person is so much different than seeing it on a phone. And there, there are times when, you know, I think back as a child seeing artworks for the first time you know, really large paintings or sculptures and just wondering how on the earth, you know, how on earth did someone make that? How, how long did that take someone to make? And then as I grew older, I started to think about, well, why did they make it? 
what are they talking about? Or I always looked at that painting and never knew anything about it. I just walked past it and said, oh, that's a nice picture. And then I started to really look at techniques and what was the artist thinking. And, you know, we don't, we don't get a chance to do that very often now because we're just going to and from and we're, we're bogged down by so many different things that are pulling us. And as a student walking through the hallways, we have a tendency to just go to and from class and be concerned with where we, you know, what we have to do throughout the day. And I've noticed that there's a lot of empty wall space throughout the country in a lot of schools that we may have temporary objects put up, posters put up temporarily, but not very many permanent artworks displayed on a wall and especially owned by students and selected by students. And I think that is a really powerful part of what we do is is we give these students a chance to make a choice, to leave a legacy, and to give others an experience that they may not otherwise have. In segment three, we're going to be talking about how artists can submit their work. But while we're in segment two, I want to dig in a little bit more, James, uh, on sort of art collecting in general and getting students involved in this. Um, So beyond graduation, can, you know, once they're out of high school, they're, they're starting college or they're taking that year off backpacking through Europe or whatever, can they really afford fine art or original art or is that really a financial moonshot. I'm curious about what happens when they leave the school and the collection stays with the school. Well, I think that I think that what we're really doing is we're planting a seed, and that seed it may not flower early on in their professional career or their life. They may have any other things pulling them into areas where art collecting just isn't going to happen. But uh, as I've told my students that I teach in the home building class that it really doesn't matter right now if if you're living in someone else's house or you live in an apartment. At some point, you will have to fix something. You will have to possibly build something. You you will, if I'm talking to an art class, you you will make a purchase that is artistic. Uh, you will you will put something on your walls, and what is, what are you going to put on it, and how are you making that choice? Do you want to make a good choice? Now, there's some art out there that that is maybe more expensive that the average person couldn't afford, but there's a lot of artists out there that do have their work reasonably priced. We we live in an age where we'll spend a few hundred dollars on a game system and not think twice about it, and I and I think that there's a number of artists out there that have their work at a price point that the average person could afford, but a lot of people just don't know where to look. You know, they, they go out and they look for an artwork at their big box store and they'll spend a hundred dollars or $200 and, and they're just completely fine with it. But who wouldn't want to have, you know, an authentic actual painting hanging up on their wall that, that they are connected to it's just a matter of planting that seed and letting students know that there's a world out there that you can explore. And, uh, and, and I think that is really kind of the power of, of what we're doing is that these students get a chance to go through this process and understand that there's an artist there that's producing the work and they are approachable. At, at an event that would be held, we would invite the artists in so that they can mingle with the students and talk with them and talk with the, the parents there that night or the community members and that they can ask them questions. And, you know, I think that's a, a really uh, important part of establishing a collection like this is that you, you bring the artists in to a, a group of people that may not be connoisseurs of art yet, but the, that seed is planted or those adults may say, you know, I'm going to come to this thing every year because I don't know a lot about art, but I know at least this has been through a process and that these students have looked at a number of artworks and they deem these ones here tonight as being ones that are worthy of hanging on a wall. So I may, and I've seen this happen, I may want to buy the work that's not actually purchased by the students because I'm drawn to it. So there's benefits 
and, and you know more than just to the students and and the aspect of collecting for the future, but also anybody who attends an event like that. You know, uh, you're really singing our song here. I want to riff on a couple of uh, points that you're making uh, because we're actively, you know, we have sort of a postgraduate fellowship program for working artists in which we're covering things like um, the new avenues of sales that are available and how to approach them strategically and how to market your art um, rather than just sort of depend on someone else to market it for you. And of course, the the fastest growing uh, source of art sales isn't at all coming from gallery representation or someone else just sort of taking it over and you sort of work like an employee, not knocking the gallery system, but I'm saying that the fastest growing, bar none, internationally and especially in the U.S., where the art market is up, even though internationally the global art market is down a couple of percentage points, we're up. And the fastest growing sector is direct from the artist. That is, in fact, not only the newest trend, but it is the preferred trend of artists, of art purchasers under 35. Millennials in particular are increasingly buying their art both online and direct from the artist. So this, you're, you're sort of offering a way um, to take advantage of this uh, direct art market. And I, I said in segment three, we'll talk about the artist submissions, but I, I still want to harp on this a little bit. Uh, because, you know, sometimes artists will complain that they're sort of um, stuck in their studio or at the mercy of their gallery, and you've given them away. When you talk about right. introducing right. them to the student body and introducing them to p their potential future audience and igniting a younger set of interests, it may not take hold immediately, but in sales we call that setting up your pipeline for the future. You're getting them out of the studio and out into the market, and it's not just them, but it's teachers and parents. So I love that. And I, I just want to say one other thing, um, James, about what you said. So I'm sitting in a studio now recording this show, and every inch of my wall space is taken up by um, visual art and photography and, and paintings and so on. And, you know, I am not a rich man. <laughs> I am not getting wealthy off of this show. So uh, the, the deal is, though, that I have some quite large, quite wonderful art pieces, both of living artists and, uh, and legacy artists who I, I deeply value um, that, you know, cost me somewhere between three and, and $600, somewhere in that range. So, um, I mean, that's incredibly inexpensive. And it's amazing, you know, sometimes you can actually negotiate with an artist when they put up a work for seven or $800 and you can obtain it uh, sometimes through negotiation uh, for a lesser fee or you can obtain it at special times or during a show. Uh, I'm not saying that that going for rock bottom is the way to go, but you know, you have what you have, you may not be able to afford it, but it is not all in the $10,000 plus range. And I think a lot of people, when they think about, in order to buy my first painting or my second painting, I'm gonna have to shell out the price of a, at least a Toyota, if not a Lexus. Um, that puts them off. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm glad. I, I love what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, and you know, there is a bit of a distance that's created between you know, the, the average person and, you know, artwork in a gallery, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of people I know in my life that have never set foot in an art gallery because maybe they don't feel comfortable or, or they think that every one of the pieces is like what you mentioned so far out of their price range. There's no point. And, and one of the things that a school has to understand and the students is that, you know, there's a, there's a limited amount of funds that they would be able to raise. There's framing, there's lighting, there's all of these things that come with it. When you do have your budget, how much can you afford? So how much are you willing to spend on each artwork? And, you know, we've had pieces that come in at $500 to $50, all the way up to 5000 that, you know, someone submitted. So it, it, it could be all over the place. So I think it's really important that a school establishes you know, their, their, their highest amount that they're willing to go, knowing that maybe if we did have one, you know, a piece that was selected that was that, say, $1,500 artwork that maybe we only afford one or two that year. But, you know, if we have a committee of students that kind of cruises through the different artists and the different artworks, and they can look at those prices and say, you know, are we willing to just buy one or two? but we know that this artist is an up-and-coming artist and they may have great value. They might be a, a, a great advocate for 
what we're doing as a school and they might come visit us and, and work with us at times and, and talk with students and help us out in the future. You know, all of those things are, could be taken under consideration when they select, you know, their top group of artists that they want to come, you know, bring the artwork to the school and have it on display and then have the students vote on it. It's, it's not just about an artwork and it's not just about an artist. It's, it's a combination of things that that student committee uh, makes decisions about. So I, I, I think when it, when it comes to the amount that, you know, someone spends on an artwork, you know, it's, it's, there has to be some, some interest in really wanting that if it's, if it's expensive, because there is, you know, we, we I remember we got into a, a, a tough situation. We didn't have a, a cap on what we, we set the first year and we had to purchase one that was very expensive. And because it was one of the top choices, we wanted to start out the year with five pieces. So it actually looked like a collection as opposed to just buying one artwork. So I think it was the number two selection and it was a very expensive piece. And, and we were fortunate we had a, an individual step up and say, we'll, we'll purchase this one so you can afford more and we'll donate that to the students. So trying not to navigate down that path again, our suggestion suggestion would be to definitely set a cap and then have your students who are in that committee understand that you need a variety of, of artists who have their work at different price points, but also a selection of, of that will represent um, what the students will like as a whole, as a, as a student body. Um, you certainly don't want to neglect any areas of the school and groups of the school and interests that they may have. So, uh, you know, the students on this committee, really, they have to take into consideration a number of things. When they when they look at the artwork and the artist that uh, could make that final group, so I'm going to comment on this one more time because there's just so much there. And then I want to ask you because you mentioned budget, a, a quick budget question, and then go, jump right to the fifty-four thousand dollar question. So I won't tell you what that is yet. I'll build suspense, ladies and gentlemen. We're 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 coming close to the fifty-four thousand dollar question. Then I'll follow that with another fifty-four thousand dollar question, which nobody can afford, of course. Um, but you know, you're you're talking about this chance uh, for people to be exposed to the market. So artists are getting in and they might be thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, so you, you more accurately set the price. Maybe it's somewhere up to fifteen hundred dollars for an artwork or something like that. It just depends on what you're getting and, you know, et cetera. But, you know, it's not f probably going to be an average of ten or twenty thousand uh, dollars for an artwork, perhaps. Um, but you know, you're taking advantage of, of a new phenomenon that I think a lot of artists aren't aware of. Um, so this is a, a thing called the zero moment of truth by Google. It's a, a phrase they've coined. And what it's about is in the past, people would sort of walk into a store and they would, you know, so you want a TV, you walk into a store and you go in there sort of not knowing anything and you wander around and look at what's available. You're approached by a salesperson. He offers to lead you around and explain things to you. And you go from sort of, uh, I walked in not knowing anything to interested, to informed, uh, to motivated to make a decision. And then you walk out with a TV. And nothing works like that anymore. That in, in the rise of social media, when everybody has access to Google and Twitter and, and Facebook, what's happened uh, with the zero moment of truth is that, or the ZMOT, as we like to call it in the search engine optimization world, is people are already informed by the time they meet you. They don't just walk into a gallery out of the blue and on in large, large numbers and say, let me find out about art for the first time and hear an artist's name for the first time. Yeah, there are explorers, but very often, the insights and information we get come from social media exchanges with our peers. This is never more true than among millennials. If you're 35 and under, by the time you show up, you already know what TVs you're thinking of. You know you either want a Sony or a, or a Sanyo or whatever. Uh, I just dated myself. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I used yeah I used Japanese brands instead of Korean. It's the Korean brand, the Samsung. There you do go. It. So, but, you know, it, the same exact phenomenon is happening to brick and mortar galleries uh, where people are, are uh, by the, they come to the gallery in fewer numbers and more already informed about who the gallerist has and what they want. And so it's this social back and forth where people are discussing you that you don't even know about that is the primary driver now. 
And so here you are taking it out to the schools where a group of millennials can start a dialogue around a particular artist and around a type of art they like that you may, you may not have reached them yet. You know, different formats, media, uh, styles, and genre. And these are the future buyers. And even though the first work you might sell them is $1,500 or $500 or whatever, um, these are the future startup lawyers and the future uh, funded startup founders. And they are the future occupiers of younger and younger seats that will be the source of corporate commissions. And so it's a fascinating thing. As I think about, as I try to rotate around this thing you're doing, James, and I, I look at the puzzle from all the sides, it is, it is a wonderful thing you're doing for students, but I have to say, it's a wonderful thing you're doing for artists, opening up this kind of market. You're really bringing uh, the art market to the students and vice versa. So now I want to ask right. you about uh, budget, uh, and then and I'll okay. spit out the $54,000 question and shut up and let you go at it. So budget, the budget questions, you mentioned budget, but I didn't hear you talk about, you talked about lighting, uh, and so on, but I didn't hear you talk about maintenance, you know, preserving the artwork and, and so on. And I'm, I'm curious because I think a lot of artists would care about how long their works are going to last after they're, even after they're sold. Right. Are they selling to people that are going to be responsible? And then the $54,000 question is, here it comes. And every coach uh, who's like, defund the art department. There's a lot of coaches that don't believe that. But when I was in school, right. it's like, give that money to football. What are you doing? <laughs> so why, why should schools collect art? when budgets are becoming more strained and the football coach is running out of jerseys? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a good question. And having been a former football coach as well, you know, I, I would be on both sides of the coin. Right? We, we had students that, you know, couldn't afford some of the practice gear and we'd have to do some fundraising to help them out or we'd have to eat some of the costs to provide some kids with mouthpieces and socks and things. And you know, you're you're always competing, I think, in a school for dollars. You know, generally, if it's a site-based managed school, the principal is going to decide where the funds need to go based on the needs of the school. And, you know, the reality is, is that schools are assessed by how their students do in the core classes. So your science, your English, your math, your social studies. And if your students aren't performing, then things may change. And in some places, within two or three years, a school may be shut down. And that, you know, it, it's a serious, serious thing for the administrators for not only their employment, but their teachers and, of course, the students in that community. So, you know, I, I think from an artistic side, you know, it's always, it's a good thing to have an understanding of that, you know, you're, you're working in a school, you're teaching in a school, you're teaching a, a great subject of art. But the reality is, is that it's it's set up so that if there is something that's cut or is defunded, it it will be that area because that's just not how the schools are assessed. If if it was set up differently, then you know things wouldn't be the way they are in certain places where they may not even have an art program. I know uh, California has, has struggled in certain aspects of that for a number of years, and there's a lot of outside programs that have developed because of that. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to teach in, in school systems and in places where there was a real effort to make sure that the students had art classes for, you know, K through 12, but that doesn't happen everywhere. So when, when we talk about the funding aspect of it, you know, that's where the National School Art Collective would come in, is that essentially we would help a school start it and get their feet wet and help give them the tools teach the students how to, to work with the program and, and get a good understanding of how you can manage and work this on your own so that, you know, after two or three years, you wouldn't need anybody's help, that you can run this on your own campus with your own local support, whether it be students raising funds or local organizations or businesses helping. Uh, it really doesn't take a lot each year to run a collection. It takes a lot initially to get it going. But after that, you know, it kind of runs itself. And you, you have this annual event that involves many people, community members, teachers, and, of course, the artists. And it's a, to me, it's a no-brainer why a school wouldn't want it because the, the things that it does outside of the classroom, it gives 
experiences, but also it, it can create a calming effect. Um, I've heard this often that students are looking at the artwork instead of stressing out about something else, you know, within their classes, that it's comforting, that it changes the atmosphere of the school. And when you walk by and you, you become engaged in something like that, it takes you away from those minor stresses you might have at the moment uh, before a big test or before something going on after school, that uh, an athletic event, it, it, it provides another another change of pace for a student and for anybody entering that school. And so uh, let me just revisit this part about the, you know, isn't an art collector responsible for the care of the the work after purchase? Is there, did, is there budget for muse- for maintenance? Yeah. And, that, you know, that just has to be worked into, you know, what, what, how many pieces um, would you have and how much care and, and maintenance would it take? And then locally, are there organizations or the groups that would be available to help with that? Is there a museum nearby that students or faculty could access? Could they get some resources um, to help them with that after a few years or so? Um, you know, the, the work that we had displayed was it was sent to a framer who specialized in framing artwork and taking care of it and making sure that it had all the necessary uh, aspects that you would have if you put it into a gallery or, or even a museum. Working near a major city helps because there's more resources. So we had that kind of available to us. Uh, not every place may be near a major metropolitan area, so uh, it would pose some challenges. But that's something that you know they, um, the the school and the students could work on. You know, after they begin the collection. Um, you know, one of the things that I tried to make sure that when we put it on display, that they were in locations certainly that didn't get pounded by the by the light or the heat in front of some of the windows. You know, the Texas heat and the sun can really be damaging to certain pieces. So trying to make sure that the more delicate uh, works of art were in a more secure location away from some of that. But there's just some unavoidable obstacles, you know, that, that come with it. So uh, rounding out uh, this segment before we go on to how artists can get involved in the program, let me just ask you about how schools can get involved uh, in the program. So let's say a high school wants to start their own collection partnering with NSAC. So what are the costs, the logistics, and what do they need to consider? Well, I think the first thing is, do you have support locally that you could access in the future? Is there a PTO? Is there a parent organization on campus that would be supportive? Um, It has to come from within at first. You have to have an administration that supports it. I think some faculty members, maybe some parents that really have an interest in art helps. Obviously, the students. There's so many students I know involved with the arts that they just really don't have an outlet, a group that they can be a become a part of you know normally there's an art club at a school and they meet and they do a little bit of artwork but when it comes to fine art and the idea of curating or the idea of actually working with artists and reaching out to art schools and university art programs there's so much potential there to engage your students in ways that they can utilize down the road particularly when they're learning about what what's beyond high school when it comes to art what's beyond my you know middle school when it comes to art they become more engaged just throughout the entire school district with anybody involved with the arts because usually a program like like this can affect um, just about everybody in the school district that's involved with the arts and then anybody who's you know becoming uh, engaged with it uh, throughout the community there, there are a number of places that I know I spoke with just as a result of reaching out to them and saying, look, we're starting this art collection. Um, we're looking for some help with you know, this one aspect. And they're more than happy because they know that the resources generally aren't there for art programs or for experiences in the arts for students. So it's, it's something that once they get wind of really what's happening, that they start to become fascinated, some of them, and, and really kind of step in and, and want to help out even more. So that's, that's what I would say to the schools. 
do you, do you have that potential? And if you don't have that potential, you know, there's still opportunities that you can develop relationships and you can develop a backing within your own school. What we would need from a school is, you know, contact through either social media or websites. We have a special um, page where if you have an interest, you can submit some documents and tell us why you think it might be good at your school and, and how we can um, maybe help make that work. Um, you know, our goal is to help a, a school start this and give them the resources and teach them the things that you, you would need to do to make it work and become independent after two or three years so that you really wouldn't need a lot of outside support other than what you have in your community. Well, uh, this is really, I think, going to be of interest to a lot of schools, James. I want to pivot uh, in the final segment of our show and uh, ask you about artists uh, and how they can take advantage. So let me start off with this. If an artist wants to get their work in front of these students uh, and these schools, how exactly do they do it? What are the next or the first steps? Well, there would normal normally be a call to artists, just like you would have with any number of art competitions. You would search your local um, resources. Um, you go online, you know, depending on the state. Um, I know there's data banks with art opportunities. There's magazines with different art opportunities for artists. So each school would advertise in their own way on those different platforms to announce that. One of the things that I had to do when I was tasked and kind of had this responsibility when I started this in the school was, how do you get the word out? How do you tell the artists? And and one of the more interesting conversations I had one time, I was on the phone with an artist and said, you know, we're starting this program. We We'd like to know if, if you might be interested in submitting a piece to the competition. And they thought that I wanted them to donate one of their artworks. And they just had no idea that we ultimately would buy their artwork and then invite them to the school to be a part of the event that, you know, when we make the selection and, you know, it was just a foreign concept to them. You, you don't want us to donate something, you know, because artists are constantly being asked to donate something for a fundraiser or an event, a silent auction. And so it, it was a little difficult to get artists to submit. So the first year, you know, it was a smattering of artists from around the state of Texas. And, and the ones we did receive, they were very good. Um, one of the other challenges we had is that we didn't put a cap on the number of artworks they could submit. So, you know, some of the artists submitted up to 10 or 12 pieces <laughs> Uh, so you can imagine how many artworks we kind of had to sift through just to say, okay, we just want one artwork from each artist. You can just submit one um, because the next year the word got out and other artists that had submitted, they may have been in an art group or an organization and told some others about it. But we became a little bit better at advertising and using the different types of outlets. You know, and it's funny, you know, we would send a flyer to a university and I know one of the one of the artists who submitted just happened to be walking by and saw it and we had a little QR code on it and they just scanned it and it took them to our website and they just filled out the application and so it's you, you kind of have to look for it but that's one thing that the NSAC would do is help that school market what they're doing so that they get an, enough submissions so they have to have um, a good quality number uh, to work with the first year. Well, we will be letting out what your website address is at the end of the show, but let me ask you the next sort of most logical question. So you see a lot of artist submissions, obviously. What gets one artist noticed over another when it comes to the submissions themselves? Well, obviously the image, the imagery that they create, oftentimes I think it's the background of the artist. You know, it's these are students. So they're, they they want to know who that person is. You know, it's not just about the artwork. It's, I remember a friend of mine, his, his wife told me one time that she wanted an artwork that I did. And I said, well, how, you haven't even seen anything I did. She said, well, I collect the artists just as much I do as the artwork. And I think there's some students out there, they just become enamored with some of the materials that we will put out about some of the artists. I can tell you there there was one, he was a the the number one voted artwork for that particular year 
and his artwork was was really great. But I think the fact that he was legally blind made his work seem even greater to the students and his background story. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's it's it can be pretty interesting um, what what they deem important. But I, I think the more approachable and the more information out there. So an artist who has a pretty developed website, an artist who may even have video out there, that goes a long way. I know one year we had a number of uh, artists who had uh, video interviews or things out there on social media, and every single one of those um, artists made it to the next level. So that that's very helpful, and especially in a world, a digital world, you know, these students are always sharing everything uh, on social media. So it's you know that's their world, and you know I think as an artist, you know, it, it's smart to engage in that if you want to tap into that as you know, part of your marketing campaign for yourself. Well, now, of course, you're singing my song. I teach marketing in the Business Accelerator Program for the Clark Ewing's Fund. So uh, for those of the fellows in the marketing track that are listening, you heard it here. <laughs> and, and we'll move on to, I just have just a couple more questions that will wind down the show. So um, I have this question, you know, that I think will probably be in the minds of some artists um, and some other curators, you know, because there's a lot of people that put a lot of effort into curating art, um, either through purchasing the art or showing the art, or even uh, in publications. You know, um, last week we had the um, the editor of Fine Art Connoisseur on, for instance. So, do you worry about the high school having a cohesive collection? And, and I, I actually, James, I want to augment that. Do you? Do you worry about that, that the collection sort of, the pieces sort of fit together the way they might in a, in a curated collection oftentimes, or is it entirely collective, but also, uh, I mean, eclectic, but do you also see a trend toward that favors a particular genre or particular medium? Is it, is it fairly homogenous? You know, and, and I think that, you know, it all comes back to that student committee because, you know, they, I think they have an understanding that, that you know, there isn't just one artwork that supersedes every other type or style that, you know, it's it's their collection that it means something to them to have variety, to have a range of work, whether it be different types of media, different types of themes, different types of artists, artists who are self-taught and artists who have, you know, multiple degrees and MFAs and so many solo exhibitions that they can't put it onto two pages, you know, on their resume. There's just, I, I think the the real important aspect of a, a strong collection is that there is variety and that it does change from year to year. And that's kind of the beauty of it. You know, this is, it's not a gallery. It's, it's not a museum where we have these designations of, you know, this is 17th century and this is, you know, Aboriginal work. And it's, this is the work selected by the students of this school. And this is what matters to them. And this is what mattered to them in 2019 and 2020. And what they hopefully end up seeing years from now is the interests, the themes, what was happening at that time, almost like a time capsule. Because they they are you know they are in tune to what's going on in the world right now, and hopefully the the work they select reflects that, reflects their interests, and reflects the times. Well, so great answer. Um, I'm going to ask you a final question. What is next for the National School Arts Collective? Well, I, I think it's just like a lot of organizations. We are driven by funding. So we're constantly looking for opportunities to raise funding so that we can help schools develop the collective. It's a, you know, for me, it's a, it's a constant struggle because I'm, I'm pulled in different directions, of course, as a teacher, but also um, leading this. You know, I, fortunately, I've been able to reach out to a number of places um, as a teacher and kind of develop some of those skills. So, you know, what our focus is on right now is, is continually raising funds and obviously in, in many different ways, private donors, organizations, corporations, um, and of course, all your government grants and grants by foundations as well. 
You've been listening to the Thriving Artists Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on the National School Art Collective and James's work, visit nationalschoolartcollective.org. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund and our Business Accelerator program, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks for listening, and thank you, James. It's been really great having you. Thank you. I appreciate it.